welcome to Bitch Conoclast. I'm Dylan Nicole Bandy. And I'm Sonia Lee. And Bitch Conoclast is a mother-daughter podcast about sex, sex feminism, feminism, and, and power. Today we are speaking with Alyssa Washuda. Alyssa Washuda is a member of the Cowlitz Indian tribe and a writer of personal essays and memoir. She's the author of two books, Starvation Mode and My Body is a Book of Rules, which was named a finalist for the Washington State Book Award. Her work has appeared in Salon, The Chronicle of Higher Education, BuzzFeed, and elsewhere. Alyssa serves as the undergraduate advisor for the Department of American Indian Studies at the University of Washington, and she's a nonfiction faculty member in the MFA program at the Institute of American Indian Arts. Born and raised in New Jersey, she called Seattle home for the last 10 years, and soon she's going to join the faculty at Ohio State University. So Alyssa, I love My Body's a Book of Rules. Can we just start with the question, what is coming of age? When I think of coming of age, I think of a process that happens in a book. I, I think of it in a very literary way. I don't think of it as something that happened in my life or is happening in my life. You know, I think of coming of age as something a narrator travels through in a certain kind of book. And I think My Body is a Book of Rules is a book in which that happened. There's all different kinds of coming of age stories and they're kind of going through my head as I'm saying this and they're all so different. But, you know, for me, and My Body is a Book of Rules, coming of age meant just first encountering all the hard stuff that happened to me once I got out of my parents' house and got out of that protective environment and, you know, nurturing environment out into the scary world where a lot of shit happened. Um, In my life, you know, I don't, I never think of coming of age as something that has happened to me, even though I am an adult and I did grow up and I am so much different from the person I was when I was, you know, 22 and experiencing the things that I wrote about in the book. Um, But there's so much more that that has made up my breadth of lived experience than the sort of selected plot points that I put into the book. And it it was, I think, not something I was thinking about at all when I was writing the book. I didn't think of it as a coming-of-age book. Um, I was just writing about all the shit that had happened to me using form in a very conscious way and trying to turn over these same issues over and over again. I think it was only after the book was done that I really saw that as a representation of a learning process, a Mm -hmm. growing process. Um, This might make me cry, for which I apologize, because I still apologize for crying. Um, You say, um, in college, I did not yet know that my thoughts, even the ugly ones, are worth hearing. Um, I assume you meant this as an undergrad student, and I have a bit of a chicken and an egg question for you, which is, um, what came first, the, the feeling of worth, or was there some process by which you were finding that as you were doing, I assume, writing or something? When I wrote that line, I was thinking about bipolar disorder and being diagnosed bipolar and learning to see my thoughts and my feelings as symptoms. You know, it ended up, I've, I've since learned just how destructive that was to me because I, you know, it's only been in the last couple of years that I've learned to accept that I have feelings and that people have feelings and it's natural and it's normal, which, you know, when I was first diagnosed with bipolar disorder, I, I didn't 
believe that I thought okay I'm upset this is an episode I'm angry am I going into hypomania everything was a potential symptom there was no room in my life for sadness for grief for excitement because anything scared me as a potential symptom um so it's it's been a long process of learning that you know even or maybe even especially feelings that that I don't like are really healthy for me after getting sober I felt all the feelings and grieving for the first time sober was to get to that depth of sadness you know when I was seeing my thoughts as symptoms I would have thought this is a depressive episode rather than thinking this is a space of human experience I've never had before and like what an amazing experience to be that fucking sad it's kind of incredible so I'm, I'm trying to remember your initial question because I feel like I've gotten kind of away from it just but. the process of, of um, accepting the thoughts is worthy I think I realized you know who I am and who I maybe always have been the, the self that I tried so hard to get away from for so long with drinking I think I realized that the thoughts I had that I saw as ugly were just things about me that are not ugly, you know? It's just insecurity or um, obsessiveness or, I don't know, other things that are just features of me and it's okay. I don't need to try to um, numb myself to the point where I don't think about those things about myself or I, or I can pretend they don't exist. I didn't, I didn't set out to write, you know, in order to bring a therapeutic process into my life. And I, for a long time, I didn't think the writing was therapeutic. I didn't, I didn't do it to learn anything about myself. I did it, I don't know, I don't know why I did it. I mean, when I was 22, I, or younger, when I first started writing fiction, I guess I was around 20 or 21, you know, I wanted to be famous. That's why I was writing. I wanted to be a great artist and be famous. And it eventually evolved into the realization of what had always been there, that I wanted to create something beautiful. But I didn't, I didn't ever set out to do something that was therapeutic. But, you know, more, much more recently, this is probably a year ago, I finally got a diagnosis of PTSD. It had been more than 10 years since I was raped, and I didn't have a PTSD diagnosis. Um, and then, you know, saw a new doctor, and we talked about it, and he told me, you know, even though this wasn't really treated for a long time, um, you've been doing work in writing and that has helped you a lot. That has been therapeutic. So, you know, I guess you don't have to set out to do something therapeutic in order for it to be therapeutic. I'm curious about if there is a specific process for you that makes writing safe. It's interesting to think about that because I've just been reading So Sad Today by Melissa Broder and it's kind of making me realize that even though I feel like I am willing to write about anything, I don't know that I've been able to quite get there. It feels like a challenge to me because she's writing about things that are just, you know, resonate so deeply with me. That's deeper than I've been able to get. That's bolder than I've been able to be. I admire it. Um, but I had the experience of, of being at the AWP conference and, you know, people would come by and I'd tell them, well, this is a book about rape and bipolar disorder. And, 
you know, I could see discomfort in some people. One guy just started laughing and laughing and he walks off still laughing. Um, yeah, I've gotten more comfortable talking about it, but I, there's just something about me that always wants to please people and never wants to make anybody uncomfortable, even though this, I mean, having been raped is deeply uncomfortable for me, more uncomfortable than it will ever be for anyone else to hear about it. But, you know, there was a time when I, I couldn't talk about it at all, really to anybody. Um, I think I even had trouble talking about it in therapy at first, and I was in deep, deep denial about the fact that it happened. So, but in writing, you know, that's just, that first draft is just mine. Nobody has to see it. I can write whatever I want. And there have been a few instances in which I, I felt like I divulged too much and took something out, but I can barely think of any. Once I got it out there, I realized it, it's not that bad. I mean, and by that not that bad, I mean the thought of other people reading it is not that bad. Once I get it down on the page, it, it seems to immobilize it a little bit, and I'm not as afraid of it. Is that uh, because it's releasing shame? I'm not sure that I know what exactly shame is. I know I have it. I have a lot less of it than I used to. When I think back to the, the process of beginning to write about it, I think about all the self-doubt I had and all the doubt I had, you know, all the voices coming in that were challenging the authenticity of my experience. You know, the, one of the things that drove me to write about rape was the experience of, you know, realizing I was raped, calling the campus helpline and being told by the man on the other end of the line that it didn't sound like I was raped because women who are raped are usually beaten up and, you know, sometimes they die. I sat with that for a long time and I thought, all right, that, that guy, you know, he must know. And so I must not have been raped. But then something inside me for a long time was telling me that's not right. You know, I said no. And this guy did it anyway. So when I went into the writing, you know, I had I had a mentor in grad school who was just really, um, really helpful in helping me to see my own authority and my own agency and the fact that I knew my story better than anyone and I knew how to tell it better than anyone. Um, and so I got, I got a lot of confidence in grad school about how to write my own story. And I really took, I think, an attitude of rebellion to the page because it was my own safe space in which to push back as hard as I could against what I had been told, not just by that guy on the phone, but, you know, at the time, I feel like things were so much different. It wasn't that long ago, but I think for women in college, things were so different and people's ideas of what rape was were a lot different. You know, that, there were so many people talking about, is date rape rape? And now we're just not having the same conversations. Yeah. So yeah. There, there was not even the language on consent. I don't think until the last several years is what it, it's, it feels like it's a uh, part of uh, what people are beginning to understand. Regarding yeah. academia and safe space, you mentioned in an interview once being triggered by some things you were finding online on Facebook. Mm -hmm. If you, as, as a faculty member at the Institute of American Indian Arts, um, what your opinion or practice is with trigger warnings? Things work differently at IAIA 
the students and I kind of work together on choosing texts. They know exactly what they're they're getting um, for the most part. You know, they they can look into the books beforehand and determine some of the books on their own. But you know, I taught at the University of Washington for a few years. There were some time. I mean, that was before. I was seeing so many discussions of trigger warnings online. You know, there were times when I definitely gave people a kind of like informal warning, like, hey, heads up, a woman's going to get punched in the face in the middle of this book. It was a scene that I found a little bit hard. I just want to let you know it's coming up. You know, I'm really in favor of trigger warnings because I like to know what's coming. Now that I know I have PTSD, there are times, you know, over the past several years that I thought I was having bipolar episodes and I wasn't. I was having panic attacks and those panic attacks didn't come out of nowhere. They came from the way someone treated me. Sometimes they they came from, you know, just the overwhelming onslaught of reading or hearing about something difficult that reminded me a lot of my my own rape um and you know panic attacks are they can be brief but they can be kind of long sometimes and i i try to be pretty productive i've got a lot going on i'm you know i'm always writing i work a half-time job i teach at the institute of american indian arts i I, you know, do interviews like this. I do all sorts of things. And when I have a panic attack, it can really take me out. And I just prefer to be prepared for that. And I certainly don't shy away from experiencing material that's going to offend me or or even trigger me. I think that my own writing process is... I mean, it's deeply triggering for sure. I'll be kind of emotionally debilitated for days afterwards sometimes, but it's deliberate. I do that to myself. I choose it, you know, I I choose to enter that space and I know how to take care of myself while I'm there and after I come out. I like a heads up from other people if I know that I'm going to be, you know, deeply triggered. And so when I was talking about the things that I was seeing online, that was, um, I think I had just been at Hedgebrook for a few days, maybe, or had just been writing a lot for a few days about rape and about things that I had not actually written about before, abuses that happened to me that I'd never written about before. And so I was like in a pretty mushy place and was going on Facebook and seeing the Stanford rapist's face everywhere and having had... You know, having read the the letter from the woman on BuzzFeed who he had victimized, that was hard for me. I cried when I read the letter, and you know that I I got through it. It was it was fine, but just seeing his face over and over and over again, I couldn't do it. I had to I had to install a Chrome extension to block my newsfeed because it was just too hard. So. For, for me, trigger warnings are just a really practical thing that have to do with my medical diagnosis. And not once have I ever had a student try to opt out of reading the book. I don't know whether people appreciated it, whether there was anyone in the class who you know needed trigger warnings, but it certainly didn't disrupt the experience of the class. The thing about safe spaces, like that's what I really feel super strongly about. Um, and so the, the University of Chicago administration's letter to to students that was was going around oh it bothered me so much because 
I've been at the University of Washington as a staff member for I think about seven years now at the Department of American Indian Studies. And my department is a place where we can have intellectual conversations and discussions that challenge the the stereotypes of what it means to be native and challenges the ideas people have held for hundreds of years about what's good for us and who we are and who we will be and always have been. And I think that conversations about self-determination and about native identity can feel threatening to people outside because stereotypes and misconceptions are so deeply entrenched. I work in what I consider a safe space. I know that when I'm there and I'm talking to my colleagues or talking to our students in our office suite, my identity is not going to be challenged. Nobody's going to be interrogating me about my blood quantum the way, you know, it's happened to me in class as the instructor. Students have wanted to stop the class to, to talk about why I, why I consider myself native, why I want to be that. Something that I have learned to do, I actually I learned this at the University of Washington from our really amazing Center for Teaching and Learning. I started adopting ground rules for the class and it has been so helpful in, you know, making the space safe and making it super productive and, you know, moving along conversations. And we all agree on the ground rules together. And one of the rules that you know, everybody always leaves it in, everybody always likes it and agrees on it, is that if we hear something that bothers us, we challenge it, rather than just kind of letting it slip by and then it's awkward or it's uncomfortable or there's kind of brewing resentment. There's a sense of ownership of the discussion and, you know, and, and empowerment and, you know, letting someone know that something they said was hurtful. There's something you said in an interview um, about your teaching. You said, quote, Some days my students' eyes widen as they spot instances of sexual colonization in scenes that would have looked like romance before the quarter started. Those days I think I'm changing the world. That quote was referring to teaching Twilight, which I did for a while. Um, it, first in film classes, you know, that were about Native representations. And then one summer, I devoted an entire class to teaching the Twilight films. And that was a really great feeling to, with the students, to kind of dismantle this idea that this was romance. I Sometimes I only know that something's working when students tell me at the end of a quarter, you have ruined movies for me forever. <laughs> I'm going to be analyzing movies now. And, you know, they're not talking about the fact that maybe they're going to analyze infatuation differently or analyze possessive behavior differently. But if they're at least acknowledging that they'll see movies differently, maybe that means that something, you know, something is happening in, in the way that they see human behavior, too. For you, is there a correlation between what happens within academia and what you see in the world at large? Um, yesterday, I had my 26th back to school day. I have been going back to school every year since I was five. I, you know, I really don't know a world without school. And, you know, I've been at large research universities since I was 19, I guess. So that's, you know, a huge chunk of my life. So I don't really know a world without it. It's very hard for me to say whether, it's very hard for me to see, maybe it's impossible for me to see what 
the world at large is without academia because you know my experience of the world at large is, is filtered through the fact that I, I spend so much time in the academy because um, I went straight from college to grad school, stayed working there and work there now. And that's not everybody's experience. Something very particular does happen in the social environment of the large university. And I've not, I've, I don't really have experience with small colleges except IAIA. And it is very different. It's a college of, I think, maybe 250 people or something, students. And it's a tribal art school. So that's really different, but I haven't spent a lot of time there. So my experience is really limited to the large research university. And I think, you know, having tens of thousands of undergraduates in one place, a lot of them living either on campus or near campus, and having that as their primary social outlet, that definitely makes for some really unique social situations that don't happen outside. I have experience with some of those tiny subcultures like the, you know, radio station kids and, um, you know, the, the particular culture of the just off campus bar scene at University of Maryland. But, you know, there are others, you know, like fraternity life and sorority life I know nothing about. Um, but I think that the combination of academic pressure and wondering what am I going to do with my life and being in a space with, with all those people and at the same time having a developing brain and then also adding intoxicants of all kinds of kinds now that like definitely didn't exist when I was in college. Um, I think all of that makes for some just, it, I think it can make for exquisitely painful and um, alienating experiences for some people. And, you know, it, it seems as though the, the on-campus mental health crisis is just intensifying all the time. And I don't know why. I mean, I read a lot about why. But sometimes I, it, and this is really thinking that I do about my own experience of, of mental health in college, I just wonder how many people had the experience that I had of being really quickly diagnosed not treated in a, a really thorough way, but being treated using medication. Um, honestly, you know, it's remarkable to me that despite the fact that a lot of traumatic things have happened to me at universities, I, I love the setting so much. I love working there so much that I stay there. And that right after undergrad, I wanted to immediately go back for more school. I wanted to stay there as an employee, you know, and I hope I work at the university for my entire career because I, I just, I really do love to be there. I love being among people who are dedicating themselves so much to to so many things that are meaningful to me, not only, you know, kind of solitary intellectual pursuit, but also working with others, collaborating with others. I have friends now who are at other universities, who are at my university, you know, colleagues who, who I, I talk with about the things that are my nerdy interests, my nerdy intellectual interests. And I find people who want to text with me in the middle of the night about an idea for a project that we want to work on. And I, you know, get really excited thinking about it. And I really do love being able to, to teach people how to write in a way that will help them bring their experience out of their heads and out of their bodies and onto the page. Because I know it's a process that, you know, it's, it's at the center of my life. It's the thing I love the most. And I was only able to do it because of the help of my teachers, you know. 
um, Maud Casey at University of Maryland and um, David Shields and Maya Sonnenberg at University of Washington, you know, those three people were really the most helpful for me in getting my stuff, my, you know, all my experience, all my ideas just out of me onto the page and, and helping me see, you know, how at the sentence level, at the paragraph level, and then structurally how to make that work in exactly the way I wanted to. You wrote this beautiful essay called The Queen of Swords, which is about your relationship with the tarot. And I'm wondering if that's with the eye toward a healing focus or a story focus for you. I started, uh, you know, I, I got my first deck, which is still my primary deck. It was, it was about three months before I got sober. And I had moved out of the city to the suburbs. And I, I was so lonely all the time. And I didn't know what was going to happen to me. I just had a feeling that, you know, I just felt like my life was not what I wanted. And it was miserable. And I got, I got a tarot deck. And I really got into it very deeply very quickly. I started realizing that I was receiving messages from something that I, I didn't understand, you know, that the universe or something was talking to me. And I started getting this one card. I started getting the four of cups all the time. And that card has this guy sitting on the ground beneath the tree. And there's three cups in front of him. And then there's this little cloud with an arm that's handing him a cup. And he's got his arms crossed and he's not going to take it. And I kept getting that, like, just about every day, you know, I'd wake up a little bit hungover, maybe, and get that card when I read in the morning. I was like, what does this mean? Like, you know, I looked on this one tarot website I went to all the time and saw it described as the hangover card. And I realized it is time for me to refuse this cup. I can't drink anymore. I didn't have any dramatic thing happen to me. Um... I didn't hit bottom in the a sense that would be a really great plot point for a book or anything. I just, you know, I just realized I was tired of being intoxicated. And it felt like the tarot was telling me, I know you're tired. It's time to listen to that. That brings me to my next question. There was something you said in your interview in Bitch Magazine when they were interviewing you for My Body is a Book of Rules. You said, when I see myself as a self-healer, that is a powerful replacement for this romantic notion I used to have of being crazy. Can we talk about that? There have been times when I didn't want to believe that my intuition was that strong because, you know, we're told in a kind of like rational, logical world that, that we can't know some of the things that, that I would end up knowing, you know? And so my recent healing process has you know it's been profound and it's been in part realizing that um my intuition is strong and that's something that i i need to honor and that's taken so long and that was such a huge thing i had such profound disbelief in my own um my own perspective on my experience you know right after i was raped i I didn't believe that it had happened to me or I didn't believe that what had happened was rape and it took such a long time to unspool that and to really trust that you know that I was the authority on that experience you know it took the writing it took therapy it's 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 still you know maybe I'm not all the way there but I feel like I I feel like I am I feel like I believe myself on this and now I get to trust my gut 
with things that are big and small because now I, I realize that it's necessary. You're listening to Bitch Conoclast. This is Alyssa Washuda reading an excerpt from her essay, Consumption. What can colleges do about binge drinking? Colleges can watch their friend's glass while she goes to check her makeup. Colleges can turn their students onto their sides before turning off the lights so they might not go out like Jimmy, or maybe actually on second thought, Google how not to choke on your own vomit, or is my friend going to die from alcohol poisoning? And if the search results say it's okay, colleges can leave her droopy body where it slumps, spit the sour night into the dorm sink, and push back out into the dark for more. They can shoot her a text in the morning to see whether she's all right. If she's not, colleges can say they did their best. They turned her on her side and everything, googled how to wake up a dead girl, told her via email one time three years ago that consuming more than four drinks in two hours is considered binge drinking for females. This has been Bitch Conoclast, a mother-daughter conversation around sex, feminism, and power. I'm Sonia Lee. And I'm Dylan Nicole Bandy. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to support us, visit our website, bitchconoclast.com. That's B-I-T-C-H-C-O-N-O-C-L-A-S-T.com. Or you can go to patreon.com and make a donation to help keep us going. We're producing, hosting, editing, and marketing this podcast all on our own with the help of a few friends. If you like what you hear, rate this podcast on iTunes. That would be lovely. Like Bitch Conoclast on Facebook and Instagram or sign up for our newsletter. Just get in touch with any thoughts and questions that you have about what's going on here at Bitch Conoclast. We'd love to keep this conversation going on with you, dear listeners. Next week, we're talking with novelist and essayist Vanessa Veselka about road trips, deconstructing dominant mythologies, and how... Jack Kerouac never went anywhere. He had, like, he had cash and he crossed the country like he wants a prize. See you then.